This is a Founding Media podcast produced at Austin Community College District. Welcome to Science in the Mall, y'all. I'm your host, Dan Diller. Even before COVID-19 took control of the world, people were still worried about viruses. Viruses are tricky and complex, and trying to get tested to see if you have one can be a difficult process. This is where Alan Blake and Dr. Richard Crockett come in. After a successful career pioneering biotechnology, the duo decided they needed to give back. Through their discussions, the pair wondered why there was not a rapid, inexpensive consumer device that had the ability to test for infectious diseases. This is when their company, Nucleon, was born. While Nucleon's original focus was on testing for Zika, it was realized that the product could be used for just about anyone to test for viruses. Early this year, it became clear that their focus should be shifted to COVID testing. So let's get to it and hear how Alan and Richard got where they are and what they're doing now. I'm excited to talk to you both, and I'm really wanting to learn more. This, As we were talking the other day, what amazed me is how long you guys have been have known each other. Would you uh, uh, talk to us about how you two met and what started your entrepreneurial journey together? Sure. So... Rich and I first met in sixth grade, so it was uh, quite quite some time ago. Kind of went through the uh, very similar experiences in terms of our education and small business uh, type opportunities here and there, uh, some, somewhere between age 10 and age 18, and um, and it was uh, just a great experience. We grew up in New York, so uh, kind of northern Westchester area. I, I think we, we connected, uh, Dan, really, uh, we were both, I think, very early on entrepreneurs at heart, and that was something that was pretty obvious in the other one, so that was a uh, natural bond, even though we probably wouldn't have used those words at the time, but certainly right. similar interests. So, well, why couldn't it be this way? And should we try that? You know, those kinds of questions. Uh, after high school, um, you know, my interests were really bifurcated between computer science and biological sciences. Both were very interesting and it had a lot of parallels in my mind. Uh, and um, after my undergraduate uh, that I did molecular cellular and developmental biology, did a little bit of uh, research uh, while I was doing that. Uh, that's when I came down to Austin, uh, joined back up with Alan. Uh, we did the um, online uh, uh, endeavor that we talked about. Uh, and uh, that was originally supposed to be electronic books. And uh, everybody uh, looked at us like we were nuts. And uh, it's like, what are you talking about? What does that even mean? And so uh, not, not the right time for that. Um, that was a lot of fun. It was an environment with a lot of energy. And I think when you're young, uh, and you don't know what you can't do, that's a great time to do that. It's a great time yeah. to to take a shot at those things and to learn those things because there's really no other way to to get that experience other than just diving in and trying right. it. And so I, I, I love that. Learning, and, and it sounds like, you know, the dot-com was, for many people, uh, unless you were like, you know, one of the ones that actually succeeded was just a, a learning experience. It was just one of those things where you dive in, learn, 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 and fail, but fail is, fail is just part of the journey. Right. So that's, that's yeah. what it sounds like. Well, our, and then you guys ours was up- interesting. It was, it was kind of in between. We, we were, I think very successful to a point. We raised about $4 million. We got the company to uh, roughly $12 million valuation, had uh, customers at 75 universities across the country, had about 50 employees. Uh, and, and all of that it was really the kind of first year, uh, maybe closer to a year and a half was, was trying to figure out the business model you know, probably uh, hundreds of dollars or a few thousand dollars in the bank to this uh, raising $4 million and a $12 million valuation in 75 universities across the country. 
to uh, uh, essentially back to uh, zero all in about 13 months oh, and, and 15 wow. employees, <laughs> as, as I mentioned. Uh, so it was a really wild ride and, um, you know, learned a tremendous amount from that. Um, we um, uh, ultimately uh, just... Uh, uh, the dot-com bust uh, just came at a time where the, uh, the people who had funded us just sort of said, okay, well, you know, we've had enough of the dot-com days and we're not going to uh, continue to fund this. And our burn rate was just uh, too, too much. Uh, we just didn't have the, the time or the resources really over the course of literally 72 hours. Uh, we went from a uh, bustling office with lots of energy and lots of excitement, like on a Friday afternoon in January 2001, to all of a sudden Monday morning, uh, after some uh, intense weekend conversations, uh, okay, we're going to have to uh, liquidate the business because there's no more money and paid off all the vendors as as uh, best we were able to as quickly as we could and liquidated the, the business. Um, and that, that's where the Glowfish story started, which was the next 16 years. And that's the business that Rich and I started together. And um, uh, it was quite an experience, which uh, really uh, directly led into what we're working on right now. Tell us more about the, you know, how you went from a dot-com to Glowfish and what was the thought processes there? Uh, you know, we, we didn't know anything about dot-coms when we started that either. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the original idea was um, you know, that we were, were still interested in, in doing something different and novel. And um, I had, uh, through my exposure and doing different research, come across and been exposed to different fluorescent proteins that were used in labeling studies. And so you, in science, you use these proteins and some would, would glow red and others would be uh, green. And you'd see an image and you'd see these really vibrant, beautiful colors. And the thought was, uh, could you take those same proteins? And if you we're able to express them the right way, not label individual cells, but label all of the cells in such a way that you could actually see the organism glow wow. uh, and fluoresce. Aquarium fish were really a natural fit because aquarium fish, the whole industry is driven on novelty and color. These things came together as, as an idea and we started talking about it. And it certainly sounded like a very unusual idea. Uh, but after we were talking about it a little bit, uh, it started to catch on uh, in our minds and, and grow. And we decided to actually go and do it. Wow. And so that, that's the beginning of Glowfish and six, as you said, 16 years later. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really an extraordinary business, uh, essentially the intersection of uh, biotechnology um, politics through all the regulations of uh, biotechnology and, and um, uh, genetically uh, modified organisms and, and such uh -huh. uh, and, and uh, aquarium fish. We ultimately were able to grow that to um, about 15% of the industry in terms of dollars wow. spent. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, it was great. Uh, we had over 7,000 retail locations, so it included Walmart, PetSmart, Petco. Uh, we ended up selling the business to a longtime strategic partner in 2017, so Spectrum Brands. We met a lot of other people who uh, we, we got to work very closely with along the way. And uh, learned a tremendous amount about commercializing biotechnology. And in, in the interim, um, one thing that is also really interesting, which sort of makes all this <laughs> work and makes a little more sense. Um, not long after we got going with Glowfish, um, Rich had a chance to go to medical school and, and learn uh, a few things about uh, the, the medical space, which is, is obviously very important with what we're doing with Nuclein today. So um, anyway, Rich, I'm maybe happy to 
you should uh, talk a little bit about uh, your experience there because obviously that relates to what we're doing with Nucleon. Yeah, so I actually went back to Yale to get my MD, um, did actually your research there. Uh, and that was a great, I think, uh, insight into the difference between the theoretical world of medicine and the practical uh, clinical world of medicine. There's a, a good quote from Yogi Berra that I like and I repeat not infrequently, which is, uh, in theory, practice and theory are the same. In practice, they're different. And so there's a little of that going on when you're uh, trying to deal with uh, real patients and uh, real disease states, which I think is very helpful, certainly, uh, as we try to contextualize what we're doing here with Nucleon. So I'm going to go back to 2017. You had this exit. Everything was like great experience, did a lot of learning, good things. Now you're sitting in 2017. And how does, how does this inspiration start for Nucleon? You know, a lot of it was we, we learned so much during the Glowfish business about commercializing biotechnology. What's really interesting is that in biotech, you have to really line up so many things successfully in order for it to work. You, you've got the, the, the technology, the science of it that needs to line up with all the intellectual property, which needs to line up with all of the regulatory requirements, which needs to line up with all of the commercialization requirements, including things like uh, public relations and uh, distribution and, and then ultimately uh, sales to the, the end customer. So this is just all a set of things where any of those don't work out, you could be in a lot of trouble in business. Right. And mm -hmm. in biotech, it's, just, it's so cutting edge, it's, it's, it's really unique uh, in, in terms of how some of these things need to be approached. And so... You know, there we were. We learned all this. We sold this business, and it was a very successful sale. Uh, we, we were uh, you know, very um, fortunately just, just um, a lot of luck, a lot of hard work, and a lot of luck. Uh, I mean, that's to me, success is is really both of those. You you, you need uh, really a, a lot of hard work. Uh, I mean, many years of of sixty and and more like eighty hour work weeks for years mm -hmm. and years and years, uh, but a lot of luck along the way. Because lots of people work like that and, and, and just for whatever reason, circumstances are different and can't quite make it happen. So um, you put all that together. And, and great people. I think having people along with you on that journey right. that are also willing to make those sacrifices and willing to believe in what you're doing, uh, you really, it, it's so uh, key to what, what, you know, those three ingredients, I think, together are, are, the, are the special sauce, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. It takes it takes the right team and and being able to attract and and really um, align everybody along the way. Um, and so uh, you know we just learned all this. Had financially did very well with it. So we're at a point where um, you know we, we didn't need to work anymore. Uh, but also being uh, forty years old, sort of having this feeling of okay, well you know I, I do want to do something meaningful with my life. I do want to do something so I've got this whole next chapter of my life and wanting to do something really um, helpful and kind of make a, a positive impact in, in some uh, significant way. And, you know, just feeling a, um, both the opportunity and the obligation, uh, at least in, in my case to say like, look, you, you've, you've got all, all of this, uh, that you've been able to do and potential and resources, like you got to do something with it to try to make, make use of it. Is it more like a responsibility that it's yeah. like, I, I feel responsible to now give back or do something De different? Definitely. At least, and everybody's different, but for me, it certainly that was it. And, and so, um, uh, and we did just to note it in, in Glowfish, we did a lot of work with clean water initiatives, really Alan spearheaded, uh, that idea. And it was fun, just phenomenally successful where we were able to, uh, put in, 
new wells and fix old wells uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, the you know, sort of lives saved per dollar uh, that we were able to do there is really is unparalleled. And, and the organization that we work with, uh, WellAware, who's also based here in, in Austin, uh, at this point still, I think to this day, has a 100% success rate with uh, the wells that they put in and the, it just changes the whole environment on there. So that was all because of Glowfish and the tie-in with fish and water and, and our desire to do that same type of meaningful work uh, for people. That's great. Yeah. yeah, this actually was really interesting um, uh, just to uh, mention it. So so we gave uh, a bunch of, it's just our all the little connections. So our, our first marketing manager for Glowfish ended up being sort of, uh, I think one of the first volunteers for this organization called WellAware. And, uh, and so that's how I originally got, uh, uh, connected with them. And, and over the years, they, they've been amazing. So they, they have got this just incredible track record, but, um, you know, here we are very entrepreneurial and, and I said, well, you know, uh, clean water we take for granted with the aquarium. So we wouldn't have an aquarium, um, uh, industry if we didn't have clean water here in the United right. States. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people need clean water too. And, and so let's, let's support the, uh, opportunity with, well aware to, to try and create um, some additional uh, clean water infrastructure. Well, you know, it was great. Rich got behind that. The board got behind that. And when we talk about people and, and the ability to make positive change, uh, even as a business, even if it's not the core business. And um, uh, so then we took a look at this and the details and, and Rich said, well, you know, gee, there's, there's so many wells out there that people build. And then, you know, you get a five cent piece or a 30 cent piece that breaks and the well gets abandoned because, you know, in the middle of, uh, you know, Kenya or wherever it may be, uh, you can't find a 30 cent piece. And, and so the well stops working. So, you know, what if, what if there were a way to just sort of, uh, go in and, and, uh, fix those, those wells, just do a, um, uh, essentially, uh, renovate them and, and get, and get them working again. And, um, well aware to their credit, they, they looked into that and, uh, the lady who runs it, Sarah Evans is, is just amazing. And so they, they started working on that model where possible. And so, the money we gave today supports something like 45,000 people in terms of clean wow. water. Yeah. It's, it's wow. just a huge, and it's, and as Rich said, all of the wells are still working and it's just been this enormous success and that's really to well aware's credit, but it also shows the um, opportunity with community and networks and when people work together and look at things yeah. in a different way. And so mm-hmm. um, as, as Rich said, this was, we had some exposure to this and, and that was, you know, at the end of it with Glowfish, we both said, gee, with all the things we've done, this is one of the things we're most proud of. And, and so then the question was, okay, all that background, what do we do from here? And um, around that time, uh, Zika was an issue in Austin. And my wife and I were thinking about having uh, a baby. And she kept getting bitten by mosquitoes. And I was uh, nervous about, well, are they carriers of um, Zika or not? And, uh, and, and so um, then we were you know, sort of like, trying to figure that out and you'd have to go and see if this, you know, what information did the city of Austin have and not much. And anyway, it just really occurred to me that this, this was an unnecessarily uh, difficult and frustrating situation. And why couldn't we just have a very rapid and expensive uh, consumer device that would be able to tell you if the mosquitoes in your backyard were carriers of Zika. And um, Rich and I started talking about that and uh, pretty quickly understood that if you could, do that, then you could really detect any nucleic acid sequence, any DNA or RNA sequence. And if you could do that, you have a infectious disease detection platform 
And, and if you could do one that would be rapid and inexpensive and portable, um, wow, the, you know, the, the implications of that are, are, are staggering. Yeah, incredible. Just, yeah. just staggering. And so um, in so many different ways, um, human infectious disease, animal infectious disease, genomics, uh, to uh, environmental DNA, to forensics, to just even research and uh, development in general. Um, it always amazes me that the, the initial idea starts with something that's affecting you or your family, right? It's like mosquitoes, kids, what do I do? And all of a sudden that turns into this much, much larger, larger piece is what you guys are working yeah. on. You sort really of scratch cool. your own itch, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so, um, so we named the company Nuclean, which was mm-hmm. uh, the name I was coined in, uh, I think 1869, Friedrich Miescher. Uh, sort of the, the stuff inside cells. Uh, and, and that was, um, uh, I, I guess there's a bunch of stuff he was looking at, but part of it eventually was understood to be uh, nucleic acids. Uh, so, so genomic DNA and, and uh, of course, uh, RNA. And, and so that's, that's where, uh, as far as I know, the, the, the where nucleic acid orig- um, sort of uh, uh, originates from. And so... Uh, so in- I was going to say in a nutshell, a, a testing platform and then tests that you can put into the testing platform to test for, for various things, correct? Yeah. yeah the, the central idea was that we, it would be something you could use anywhere, that a, that a lay person could use it, uh, that it was uh, going to be so easy and, and those types of things. And so obviously how you apply that technology into different areas can be very differently situated. But the, the general idea was that there was such wonderful technology that had been locked inside labs for many decades. And it was all known. There's nothing uh, overly complex that people didn't know how to do, but y- you never were able to get that out where it was actually needed. People talked about uh, you know, uh, bedside tests or penside tests in the veterinary world, but they were always uh, you know, a stone's throw away or they were, they were formulated in a way that it just, it just didn't really do what needed to be done. So we were really interested in bridging that gap and the the corollary to that, obviously, that was was very meaningful, I think, to Alan and me as well, was the idea that uh, if you could do that, then what that opens the door to is that that technology can be deployed into the developing world. And so you have a situation where if you have basic ability to do diagnosis, uh, you can make a huge difference in patient outcomes in the developing world. And to be able to have cutting edge molecular diagnostics that you could throw into a backpack, uh, a whole bunch of these tests. You don't need electricity. You don't need refrigeration or cold chain. You don't need skilled people who are technicians to use this. Uh, and it does everything uh, to the same type of standard that you'd see in a lab. That was just, you know, the idea that you could do that was so appealing. You know, the, the visual I, I always right, keep right. is this clock on the wall where, you know, live saved is wheeling around too fast for yeah. the numbers to see, you know, that, yeah. that kind of thing. I, I think, well, you know, no matter what else happens in my life, if I can walk in and that type of thing is a part of what I've contributed to, man, I just, right. I know I'll put my head down on my pillow and feel like, you know, that I've done what I came here to do. Yeah. So something as, as Alan's put it, meaningful, give you back to the world. Not that you hadn't done that before, but this is truly, especially with what we're talking about or what has affected us this year. Uh, we're doing a few episodes as you guys are aware of on uh, COVID-19 and the impact it's had. It's just been this, something that's taken the world by storm. And so you went from Zika to starting working uh, on shifting the focus to designing it for a test for COVID. So how, how did y'all decide to do that? At what point did you decide to do that? Yeah, so so just to be clear, the Zika was really what originally motivated the idea, but it was very quickly obvious once we figured out, okay, 
really talking about here is a platform that there were mm-hmm. better uses for that platform than Zika. Uh, and, and Zika, thankfully, uh, Zika did not ultimately become uh, a big concern uh, in, in, you know, sort of the, the, the pandemic sense. Uh, you know, Zika is not something you hear people, uh, generally speaking, concerned about these days. Or, or if, 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 it, if people are concerned about it, it's, it's obviously uh, uh, not nearly at the, the level of uh, COVID, as an example, uh, or even the flu. Uh, you know, how many people die every year from, from the flu? Uh, very tragically. So, and I'm not again. I'm, I don't know the current status of Zika. So. So it's, uh, I don't know, Rich, do you know what, what is the current status of Zika? It's not, it's just seems like everything is uh, so focused on COVID right now. Uh, a lot of other things are, which, which is one of the tragedies of, of COVID. If we think about it, it's not just COVID. It's, I was reading an article not too long ago about how, uh, how severely uh, the COVID situation is, is, is going to damage uh, work on so many other very important issues. Because, you know, as, as Rich said, it's, if, if somebody's affected by this, it's really for each person, it's, it's a tragedy. And, and it's, uh, you know, if, if you're the one who is affected by something, then, you know, it's, it's, it's your entire world. So, um, uh, you know, the, and, and that's why the platform is so important, because it allows us to um, work on so many different things. And, you know, ultimately, the goal is not to prioritize. The goal is to have a platform that can address all of these things. Uh, and that, that's, that's really what is the um, promise of this type of technology. You know, the, as Alan mentioned, the transition was a transition in thought at the very beginning where we realized that this was what we needed. Um, I think, uh, and we proceeded down that road for quite a while, uh, several years actually, developing the platform, getting, you know, prototypes where, where they needed to be. Uh, and we were actually right on the cusp where we said, okay, now we really need to figure out what our go-to market strategy is and what is our first product and, and you know, what do the assays look like? And within about, uh, you know, a, a few weeks of discussing that, it became very apparent what that product was going to be because we were in January and February of this year and we said, okay, well, now we know what we need to do. We're really uh, very well positioned for this in terms of the device and we think that we can really help people if we can... Uh, execute well on the plan that we need to execute on. I've heard so much about the different kinds of testing uh, for COVID, right? And one of the biggest complaints that you hear is the nasal swab up the nose. Yeah. Would you talk about some of the challenges uh, for the type of testing for COVID and maybe some of the, the, the types of testing that are being done now and how this improves it? Yeah, there's a couple of different types of challenges. You know, one of the type of challenges is that uh, you might have a very simple process, uh, but if you want 100 million people to do it, it could be as simple as tying your shoes, and it is very hard to organize that. It is very hard to get manufacturing ramped up to supply that. It's hard to get people trained. It's hard to, to handle the logistics of it. And so one of the challenges for, for COVID is that um, it is a, such a large problem. It affects so many different people in so many different ways, and it has been new. And so our understanding has evolved over time. And a lot of the information that we used early on to evaluate how to manage COVID, uh, both in terms of policy and, and in terms of medicine, was predicated on our experience with uh, influenza outbreaks or other similar outbreaks in the past. And uh, this has really been very, very different. So I think that's been a, a major challenge in terms of uh, the testing. At the very beginning, it wasn't entirely clear where this was going to go. The models that were used to predict things are very sensitive to the inputs. And so, uh, you know, there's an old adage that uh, all models are wrong and some are useful. 
And it was very difficult for people, I think, at the beginning to really fully understand what this was going to be. And even now, as we sit here today, uh, you know, a lot of things that we're going to say are probably wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. All facts have a half-life, and there's no exception to anything that we know today about COVID. In terms of testing, um, knowing where the virus is in the body, uh, in the nasal cavity, in the oral cavity, in the blood, uh, and being able to validate tests that do a good job of not only identifying when the virus is there, but identifying when the virus is not there, and having those tests be available in a format where you can deploy that to many millions of people very rapidly right. without experiencing bottlenecks in either manufacturing, supply chain, or uh, technicians to operate devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very, very difficult challenge. And we're still struggling with it today. And we're going to continue to struggle with it for uh, the foreseeable future. Um, I think uh, in terms of types of tests, broadly speaking, there are uh, two types of tests that that we generally use. One is an antibody test or an antigen test. And what that does is it looks for uh, the actual uh, virus, but it doesn't amplify that virus, which is to say you need to have enough of the virus present for the test to be able to detect it. So when the test does detect it, it's very specific and it's a good test in the sense that uh, you know that it is there as long as it's it's been designed well. but sometimes it misses it. And that's why if you look at a urine pregnancy test, which uses the same type of technology, Mm -hmm. you have to wait sometimes three, seven, 10 days until you actually get a result on there, even though you're pregnant the whole whole time. And the same thing happens with COVID. You can be infected with COVID, you can be shedding the virus, but you won't come up positive in some of these tests until you've gotten far enough into the disease course. Rich, just to clarify one point, uh, that specifically, the idea that the virus has to be present, that would be antigen testing, whereas antibody testing uh, is, is similar um, in, in terms of uh, some of the uh, accuracy considerations. Uh, antibody testing is looking for your body's response to the virus, which also takes time to develop. So somebody could be infected and uh, could be contagious uh, before an antibody test would pick that up. Um, and again, Rich's, uh, I guess what I was saying before is his medical experience is really helpful in all of this uh, because this is where you need to kind of bring together the, the hardware, the software, the biology with medicine. And then of course uh, there's FDA and commercialization and, and that's where uh, all that other experience really uh, comes in handy. Makes uh, sense. Thanks now, for clarifying uh, that. Sure. On that point, um, that's one general type of test. Those are rapid and those are inexpensive. Uh, antibody antigen, they're, they're generally clumped into uh, the, the same general kind of category as rapid inexpensive testing. They're also generally uh, perceived as not being as accurate as uh, molecular diagnostics. And, and molecular diagnostics would be the most common uh, molecular diagnostic test is the PCR test. And other types uh, include isothermal and, and uh, those molecular diagnostic tests are generally uh, dramatically um, they're, they're a lot more complicated. Uh, so those are the ones where you generally need to send a sample off to a lab and it can wait a week or two weeks. It really depends uh, uh, on, on the uh, available resources. And, and there's this really unfortunate dynamic where when there's an outbreak, uh, what may have been a one or two day wait time, it can often become a one or two week uh, wait time. So just when you need it the most, that can be more difficult. Now, to be very clear, there are still there are cases where you can go to a 
um, uh, hospital, for example, and get a test result a lot faster. There are some, especially now, that can be done uh, more uh, overnight. There, there are now kits that people can uh, get sent to their homes and they can provide a sample yeah, and that, that kit is sent away. So there are different models for this, but they fundamentally all have the same basic challenges. It's expensive. It's time consuming in, in the process of uh, from from the sample to the result. And it generally needs uh, requires uh, people to go to a location, which right. if they don't have COVID and there's an outbreak going on, uh, that's the last thing you want them to be doing yep. is going to a location where people are getting uh, tested for COVID. Or if they do have COVID, you also don't want them to be going to a location with a lot of other people. So the, the there are um, pros and cons to different uh, these different types of testing methodologies. Ours, really the idea of this was, was just to get the best of both worlds. So uh, rapid, inexpensive, and have it uh, be, be able to be uh, used by a non-technical user and provide a result uh, in, uh, in in under an hour. So, you know, the idea is uh, spit, push button, get result. Uh, and, and that's a lot more, uh, uh, all things kind of considered. Yeah, sounds uh, that, so that's much a, more efficient. Solution. Yeah, and, and of course, I should also uh, clarify, we're, we're still in the development process here. So uh, this is something that we're working very hard on and, and makes uh, a lot of sense if the technology can be brought to market. Certainly a lot better than a, a six-inch swab, uh, you know, uh, Up your nose. T- tickling the center of your skull, basically. I, and I, I'm, I don't know if you've had that, Dan. I've, I've certainly uh, had that and um, administered that, you know, when I, years ago. And, um, you know, uh, nasopharyngeal swabs aren't much fun. Uh, and, nope. and the good news is, uh, in the sense of a diagnostic sense, that uh, we can detect uh, COVID-19 equally well in saliva. And that's been fairly well demonstrated at this point. Uh, the bad news about that uh, is that that's because the virus often produces a lot of virus, and uh, and that's one of the reasons that it's been spreading uh, so effectively in the population. So, if this can be done with saliva, why isn't it being done? So, Dan, I think that's a that's a great question. And, and one point to clarify is that it is being done with saliva with certain tests, and other tests use uh, swabs that are more from the uh, lower nostril. Um, so, so the reason there, there's a lot of talk about the, uh, these nasal pharyngeal swabs, uh, is, is that's where the testing started. And, and, and that is probably still, I think, where the majority of the testing is. Uh, and, and I think it really is a question of the, uh, legacy, uh, testing and the legacy development. So when COVID first started, uh, there was a higher level of confidence that, uh, or, or at least the, belief that you needed the nasopharyngeal swab. So uh, lots of companies went out and developed those tests. And and once those tests were developed and those resources were expended and and those tests were cleared by FDA, well, you can imagine there's not a huge amount of incentive for companies to take what precious resources we have around testing and now redo everything and go back through the FDA. Uh, And uh, sometimes their platforms are just not amenable to it. The the testing has to fit into uh, existing platforms, and some of the platforms require nasal pharyngeal swabs. So I don't know the overall percentage of what's nasal pharyngeal versus what's uh, saliva versus uh, anterior nair, I think is the term for the lower nostril. Uh, I've heard about cheek swabs. I've heard about blood uh, tests. I'm happy for Rich to add anything to that, but... Uh, there is a whole variety of testing out there. It's just uh, not uh, that efficient for us as an overall society or for companies individually to go out and redo uh, 
uh, all of the testing once they've got something on the market. Um, do, you, do you want to add anything, Rich, to that to clarify? So I think with respect to saliva uh, and nasopharyngeal swabs, the, the real focus, uh, as I said at the beginning of this, is was really getting tests out as quickly as possible. And there were the fewest questions with nasopharyngeal swabs. And certainly, um, it's not the end of the world to get an NP swab. And if you are, you're sick or think you may be sick, you should definitely get one. We don't want to scare people off of those. But they are uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable. And, um, but that was not the primary concern as we were trying to get tests to market as possible, fast as possible. The, uh, the, the goal really was to do what we knew work. Now, as we've been many months into this, and we've had time to do the research, time to understand the, the disease course here and how the diagnostics work, now we understand that there are other ways to sample for COVID-19 testing, including saliva, including anterior nares or mid-turbinate swabs, uh, cheek swabs, other things that are being done that are effective. And so now that those are available, the other considerations like the discomfort from an MP swab, the fact that a person who is going to get an MP swab has to wear personal protective equipment, uh, that there's a risk of exposure and so forth, uh, those things become more important considerations. And as we try to get away from the sickest of the sick being tested to getting tests out where we can test lots of people and push the replication rate of this below one where it starts to get under control, uh, that's really an important aspect of the testing is getting something that people want to use that can be deployed quickly and that is very effective at determining whether someone is positive for COVID-19 or not. It's also simpler from a, a supply chain perspective. Yeah, uh, for sure. Have to deal with swabs. The swabs were a limitation early on. So, um, and I think that's where the the uh, uh, sort of commercialization side that I talked about earlier comes into this, where you, you look at this and say, "Wow, you know, it's um, a, a, a godsend that we have this testing available." And as as Rich said, you know, you you, you got to get out what you can as quickly as you can. Uh, but but then to look at that and say, "Okay, well, you know, here we are. If, if we're developing our product for." this uh, uh, application for this target, this, this particular uh, pandemic, then what's the best, uh, what's the, the best way to approach this that's going to help the most people in as uh, efficient a way as possible? And, and that's uh, why we decided to go with uh, a saliva test in our case. One other point to mention is that these, these tests are made to process particular types of samples. So if you look at the test physically, they're, they're physically adapted for the uh, particular swab that goes in them. Or uh, uh, if it's a, a blood test, obviously it's gonna be a particular uh, process to uh, process a blood test. And so uh, the, the big challenge is when we come to saliva is these tests are not uh, physically designed to accept saliva. Um, so um, that uh, would require the companies to redesign it and, and then go back through the regulatory process with that and, and there's a lot of resources in that. There's a lot of risk in that. And it's not as simple as, uh, well, you know, gee, the company should just uh, go spend money doing that. Well, you know, should they be doing that or, or should they work on a, a combination COVID flu test, which a lot of them are doing? So, you know, if you're the company and you're saying, how can I help the most people as quickly as possible? And do you take your resources and say, well, let's take a, uh, an existing test that works and redesign the physical test and, and the, the device and and go back through the regulatory process, uh, which takes a lot of time because it has to be done right. Uh, or do you say, well, you know what, we, we could take those same resources and now make it a COVID flu test. Uh, and, and the reality is probably a lot less resources to make 
a COVID flu test than what you would need to go back and redesign your entire testing platform, uh, plus all the risk that's associated with that. So yeah, that, um, that makes so much sense. I think that you know, as consumers, we're just thinking medicine more efficient, but we don't think about the, there's a business behind the medicine and it, the resources required, the FDA, the approvals, you've got to make these, you know, there's people and, that are making these type of decisions. Well, and it's, and it's not just, it's not just dollars and cents. And I think that's important for people to understand it, it's risk. Uh, you know, we've been working on our platform for three years now. Uh, it, this is not the kind of thing where, you know, you, you, you just say, well, well, gee, we just want to make more money, so we're not going to do this. It's the kind of thing where you can say, well, we can spend the next five years trying to do this, and it's not even going to work, or should we focus our resources on deploying the tests that we have? So even, I would say, take the the business part out of it, uh, the, the profit motive out of it, and you, could, you would still see the uh, very common sort of sense practical decision to say, if we want to help as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, stick with the tests that you have and find ways to make uh, more of that, make those faster, make the functionality of that better by adding additional targets like the, you know, adding glue to COVID and, and that kind of thing. And, and of course, there is the business reality on top of that, but I, I think it would be uh, probably not fair to say that that would be the, the driving right. um, decision in this. It, it really is, is an, an overall how do you get the, the best outcome for everybody as quickly as possible? So that's that brings me to my next question. Um, we talked last week, and one of the things that, that just amazed me is so much misconception out there about COVID, uh, COVID-19. And what are some of the things that I'd, you'd like to share or could you share uh, about these misconceptions and what we know or what you guys know as you're studying this and the testing versus what is what I consider – political news. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's the first thing is, is unfortunately this has become an incredibly uh, partisan issue, which is, um, you know, I, I think really unfortunate because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of agenda driven, uh, reporting and information and misinformation that goes along with that. So, so that's the first thing is, is just to recognize that that's happening. Um, the, the other thing I guess I would say, and then I'll be, would love to get Rich's thoughts on this, is, is that um, there's not going to be a silver bullet for this. Uh, there's this idea that, um, and, and I'm not sure to, to what extent this idea is, is commonly held. I think it maybe was more so um, not too long ago, but I'm, I'm starting to get the sense that maybe there's more of a realization of this at this point. Uh, but there's not a silver bullet. There's not all of a sudden we're going to wake up and there's going to be a cure or there's going to be uh, the vaccine solves the problem and, and we're done. Um, you know, you look at the history of vaccines and it, it's, it's really there, there it's incredible technology and it's incredibly helpful, but it's, it's a tool. It's, it's, it's one tool of many. Uh, the flu vaccine is great and it saves countless lives every year, but people still catch the flu who've been vaccinated. And, you know, part of the issue is not everybody gets the vaccine. Some people can't for health reasons. A lot of people choose not to. Of the people who do get the vaccine, it's not effective for everybody, certainly not equally effective. Uh, and, and so then you look at, okay, so people are still going to uh, get infected with this. Well, then you have to look at therapeutics. Well, therapeutics are great. We're already seeing better and better therapeutics and there's different kinds of therapeutics. There's antivirals and, and there's uh, antibody treatments and there's all different steroids and, and different things. Uh, but again, they're, they're incremental. Uh, and, and so uh, testing is 
part of that. Real quick, real quick, since you touched on therapeutics, and I know this has been, you know, one of the things that Trump said here lately about therapeutics. Can you explain to the audience what the difference between a therapeutic and an antivirus is? Or vaccine. I'm, I'm going to kick that over to Rich there to uh, give 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 the uh, medical uh, response uh, <laughs> for for clarity for what it's worth. Yeah, so I, I think there there are those sort of four categories of things that you do. There's diagnostics, therapeutics, preventative social medicine uh, measures, and then uh, vaccines. And um, a a therapeutic or clinical uh, management of a patient is really it's a holistic. Uh, approach. To, you look at the individual patient, uh, and you and you are able to determine through your, you know, your clinical acumen and the lab data you have and all the other things that flow into that. How do you manage this patient? And early on in in the, the sort of disease cycle, no one had ever seen COVID nineteen before. And so, again, you draw from other experience, and then the people that were responding to these things, they did a fantastic job with the information they had on hand, and they treated these patients in terms of how they were. Uh, ventilated and how they're managed um, in ways that we now know are are probably, there's probably better ways to do that. You know, the idea that the, there's originally an idea that this is a cytokine storm like you'd seen in influenza. And now it's maybe, uh, you know, there's uh, not to get too far in the weeds, but probably different systems, region, region, uh, region intestine systems, uh, bradykinin, uh, you know, all these different uh, systems that are involved, uh, you know, ACE receptors, all these different things that we now start to understand a little bit better how these things fit together and so what you do with the information on a patient, whether you get the steroids, do you get more oxygen, do you get more pressure, do, you know, what do you do okay. uh, with the tools that you have? That takes time to figure out. And right. uh, always, uh, you know, you have a, a situation where you have small bits of data and it can be easy to be misled to think, well, you know, I did this and, and something happened. That must have been the cause, but it's really just a correlation and not a cause. And until you get enough road underneath you with a disease like this and get the data you need to make informed decisions, it's very difficult to, uh, to know game. for sure. Yeah. Dan, I, I think what uh, the short answer to what Rich was saying is antivirals and antibodies are types of therapeutics. Um, therapeutic is therapy. Yeah, sorry, I didn't answer your question. Ways, <laughs> like, like, well, I, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes you ask a doctor a very straightforward question. You, gotta, you know, sort of, uh, anyway. so I'll answer it straightforward. So yeah. So an antiviral usually interferes with some process that the, the virus Viruses. is doing, replicating, yeah. binding to the, to the membrane, doing something where you're slowing it down so the body has a chance to kill it, or you're actually stopping the, the replication. An antibody, so they have monoclonal antibodies, convalescent serum, a whole bunch of different things, is actually the result of an immune process that has happened in response to the virus that you take from somewhere else. You take it from a goat or a rabbit or a patient that was sick and you purify those antibodies. And then you are basically giving your body a head start on what it would normally do with its adaptive immune system, which is to produce those antibodies. So those antibodies are what your body produces, among other things, to try to contain and stop that virus. And so you're basically equipping your body with a tool that is still usually a week or two away for your body to be able to manufacture itself to give your body enough time to catch up, understand this virus itself, and mount an effective immune response. So I've learned so much about uh, this from you guys. So thanks for sharing that. I want to I want to ask one last question, which is, which is you know we're doing this on uh, uh, Science of the Mall, y'all. 
Tell me how, how that's benefited uh, working with them uh, in starting this new company. Yeah, it's been really wonderful. And ACC has done just a great job of creating a bioscience incubator where uh, places people can start. I think there's a lot of great science that goes on in labs where uh, transitioning that out into the real world is very difficult. It's There's some industries where it's not difficult. If you want to create an app uh, you know, for your phone, you can do that by yourself uh, with, a, with a laptop. Right. But if you want to do um, biomedical sciences, you need a lot of equipment. You need um, environments that are suited to that. And um, there's a substantial cost to starting up that, um, that endeavor. And that's okay if you're really confident about what you're doing, but there's so much that is uncertain at the beginning of these right. things that having the ability to go into a place like ACC, where they've got a whole bunch of different um, equipment that you can use, the facilities is really great because as, a, as an entrepreneur, what you want to do is you want to go in there and fail really fast and figure out that you should go do something else if that's going to be the case. And so, well, it's, yeah, what you said reminds me of just de-risking. Every, every time a VC right. or anybody looks at a, at a new company, it's like, okay, how do we de-risk this as much as possible? That's and right. it sounds like what you're talking about is this type of business is not something you can do in your garage. You've got to you got to have all this equipment, and one of the risks yeah. is putting that much capital down. It, and if yeah, you don't have to, then it's you're de-risking. Extraordinarily expensive, and, and your rich said it's okay if you have a lot of confidence. It's well, the other component of that is. And your investors have a lot of confidence. And the reality is, <laughs> the, the reality is it's just not going to happen that way. Right. Uh, so it's more like if you and your investors have a crystal ball. And, and so uh, ACC is a, is, is a tremendous resource for the community. I, I mean, I just, awesome. I, I really couldn't overstate that. It's a tremendous resource because it allows people to get uh, into a lab and start doing real world-class science with world-class equipment and, and um, the, the community that's there for, you know, it's, it's pen, pennies on the dollar to what somebody would otherwise have to spend. And, you know, Rich and I were, I used the word fortunate before uh, with our Glowfish business that it worked so well. We were fortunate coming into this uh, because we had the resources and we had the network to uh, really give ourselves a, a dramatically better starting point than what we had with Glowfish. But even that without ACC, it would have, you know, it would have been a, a, a pretty daunting to, to look at the investment. We recently moved into our own lab and it is it is very expensive, not just to set up the lab, but to maintain the lab. And and so having that as a shared community resource is, is tremendous. It's it's sort of like, you know, the difference between uh, paying your monthly electric bill and having to go out and start the electric company if you want to have uh, your light bulbs turn on <laughs> in your house. Sense. Uh, Makes sense. It, yeah. So um, um, anyway, really appreciate what they've done. And the leadership there is, is phenomenal. Uh, Nancy Lyons is obviously running it right now. And uh, I mean, she's just been incredibly supportive. And, and that's a big part of it, too. Uh, I really want to stress that it's it's not just the infrastructure. It's the people and the leadership and having their support that when uh, you know science is cutting edge and, and you sort of have constantly uh, have to uh, adapt and adjust. And having leadership there who can understand and, and really support that is very important. Uh, and I, I think it made a material difference for us, for sure. And who's aligned, you know, who's really behind you, wants success. You know, uh, it feels like many times people are have their own agendas in, in different aspects of life um, and, and getting them to be aligned to what you're doing, to pull in the same direction, you know, 
just just not to be in your way is, is an effort. But to have someone who's a partner, you know, and, and it says, what can we do to help and happy to make connections and really acquiescing to any reasonable request is just uh, it, it's refreshing and wonderful. And I think there are a lot of companies coming through there that ordinarily would would stay ideas uh, not get a chance to prove that out before they went out uh, to write the bigger checks to build, you know, labs or what other facilities which, they need. Which obviously would, would the failure rate would be much higher because they oh, wouldn't huge. get the money, yeah. right? So yeah, I mean, the best companies don't always get the funding. You know, best ideas don't always get the funding. Sometimes these things get locked away, and um, you know, there's it takes a lot to to make something happen. You have to, have to get everything right to make it work. Even one thing's out of place, uh, usually that that's not a good outcome. So ACC is one of those things that by being there really lowers the risk and uh, the bar to actually trying out some of these things and vetting them out before writing those bigger checks. Makes so much sense. You know, uh, Alan, you reminded me of, of something you said a second ago. Um, I was interviewing a scientist from Austria and he said, you know, the correlation between entrepreneurism and science, uh, the thing is, I don't like the word failure. Entrepreneurs use that word all the time. We just call it testing because <laughs> you just have to test. But tying is all, all together is you have to fail off and fail fast in these tests to know what works and what doesn't. And for that, you need the equipment and, and, and so on and so forth. So guys, I really, really have enjoyed uh, talking to you both today. I think it was such a, uh, such an informative uh, podcast and I'm sure the audience will benefit from it as well. Thank you so much for both for your time. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you, Dan. Dan, it was a pleasure. Thank you again, Alan and Richard, for joining us today and teaching us more about the world of biotechnology and viruses. The work you are doing is fascinating, and I'm wishing you success in the future of Nucleon. If you'd like to learn more about Nucleon, please visit the link in our show notes. Science in the Mall, y'all, is created in partnership between Founding Media and the Austin Community College Bioscience Incubator. To learn more about the ACC Bioscience Incubator, please visit the link in our show notes. If you like what you hear on this show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend or family member.